Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy, featuring conversations with scholars and authors and ideas from diverse perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. On today's episode, the authors of The Coddling of the American Mind, Greg Lukianoff and John Haidt. Greg is the director of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, and John, of course, is one of the founders of Heterodox Academy, professor of ethical leadership at NYU Stern School, and author of The Righteous Mind and the Happiness Hypothesis. I interviewed Greg and John separately for this episode. The Coddling of the American Mind is not just the name of this book, but also the name of an article. What's different about the book? Well, for starters, John describes it as a social science detective story. Because it is perfectly made for social scientists to dive in uh, and say, what the hell just happened and why is it happening? And to do it in a way that's not about blaming, but about figuring things out. So a metaphor that, that I use is, Imagine if you have a desk and you work at your desk every day, and one day, a book that's been sitting on your desk for a long time, it just suddenly bursts into flames. And, and you might be like, wow, how, you know, how did that happen? And, and it turns out that there's all these crystals stuck, you know, like your daughter has a collection of crystals and she's with suction cups and she's been sticking them on your, the window of your study. And then you see, oh, wow, there's, here's a little beam of light that gets refracted at exactly 11.05 a.m. this morning. And oh, and here's another one and another one. And they all add up to actually, you know, make one patch be very, very hot. That's a roundabout way of saying we think that's basically what happened on some American college campuses in the fall of 2015. To understand the genesis of the book, however, we have to jump a little earlier. So what happened was Greg came to me in the summer of 2014. We went to lunch at an Indian place in, um, in downtown New York. And uh, I just talked about how, as someone who personally benefited tremendously from cognitive behavioral therapy, it sounded like for years, administrators had been teaching this kind of distorted way of thinking about things, kind of this exaggerated threat, you know, from speech. And students weren't really buying it. And then suddenly in 2013, 2014, the students started sounding a lot like the administrators. And that's what led us to write the first article. Our article just focused on understanding this new way of thinking that, again, not most students are doing this, but you find students at, at most elite schools, you'll find subcultures, subgroups that go in for, for this way of thinking in which they are fragile uh, and people have to be protected from hateful ideas and words and books. And so that's what we focused on. And, you know, we speculated that, well, maybe it's changes in childhood too, but we didn't really know. We just knew we had an odd phenomena here. And since things got so much worse after we published the article, um, we both were still interested in, in this. And as we dug deeper and deeper, we found what I think is an amazing story of, of sociological convergence of various factors all converging so that kids born after 1995 get kind of a triple whammy and are very poorly prepared for colleges. The colleges then adapt to some of the student demands in ways that make it even worse for them. Now, that may be true, but in the last couple of years, we've also seen the resurgence of the alt-right, which could be particularly disturbing to younger college students because their generation is more diverse. Do you feel like the alt-right also matters? Well, it does, but only in the later chapters. So, um, you know, there's no question that now we're in a polarization cycle in which people on the right see the most outrageous things 
possible from individual students or professors on the left because there's a right-wing media ecosystem that does nothing but find the most outrageous things, package them to be outraged, and send them around. But that only really ginned up in 2006. Um, there wasn't, I mean, there's was a little of that, you know, for the last 10 or 20 years, but the all, I mean, who even heard of the alt-right before 2016, maybe late 2015. But, you know, Greg noticed this problem in 2014, as did I. We wrote our article in 2015. What was going on on campus was in no sense a reaction to the alt-right. Nobody had heard of it then. That, it was just not an issue. Um, so we have to look for the causes of this and the acceleration of this elsewhere. Now, of course, once Trump is the nominee or is, is running, then you get all the, you know, the Pepe the Frog stuff and you get all that stuff and you get trolling. And the right has been extremely effective at trolling the left. And the left seems never to fail to take the... The political climate does play into this, though, doesn't it? Well, definitely the current political climate has made all rational discussions harder um, in, in, in some ways because it is such an intense environment. It does seem like in the Trump administration that things look like the kind of stereotype of what the culture war. Because when I started in 2001, let's take a step back, um, you know, both Height and I have this interesting position in the culture war. We sometimes feel like we're almost like referees for it and trying to get each side to sort of uh, tolerate each other and talk to each other. But conservatives seem to have this really exaggerated sense of what left censors looked like on campus. And uh, liberals, mostly my friends, sometimes had um, this exaggerated sense of what, you know, the average conservative looked like. Um, but now in 2018, you know, 17 years later, it does look like sometimes in, in some ways it does look like we've almost become uh, these characters of ourselves, Or maybe we're just more aware of these characters because we have, um, you know, a, a president who is a constant uh, presence on social media um, and that we're able to see more of it. But I do think that the evidence that we uh, that um, we marshal in the book shows that the polarization um, that we that, that is part of our you know, lived experience um, is very real. Even though the book is very political and very sociological, chapter seven begins with a personal story. Yeah, um, <laughs> just on a very personal note, uh, I wrote that introduction um, because I wanted to be very honest and emotionally honest about like how I got into cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, I used to have pretty uh, chronic, uh, pretty serious chronic bouts of depression, but the scariest and most frankly life-threatening one I had was back in 2007. And in writing that passage, there's something kind of funny that happens sometimes in the writing process that I'm, I'm sure you know, is sometimes it feels like you're just talking to your computer kind of privately. And, you know, I wrote up this description of how bad it was and how close to, you know, that I, I, I was trying to figure out ways to frankly kill myself. Um, and I am ex fairly explicit about it in the book. And after, you know, we've submitted the book, um, long after I wrote that, that, that part, I realized, oh my God, like this is like the most public thing <laughs> I've ever said. This has more details than I would, I've, I, I'd even shared with my wife or my family. Um, you know, so that I had a moment of like, oh my God, what have I done? Um, but I wanted to be you know, honest about it. It comes from a, a really, a, a really bad depression. Um, and my recovery from that depression involved, a, you know, several factors, but the most lasting um, benefit I got was from cognitive behavioral therapy. So I still get, you know, these um, sort of moments of feeling the depression coming on every year. 
But because I learned the intellectual habits of being able to sort of talk back to the voice in your head that says, you know, you're broken or you're doomed or all of these kind of um, uh, really kind of uh, exaggeratedly negative things and just talking back to them rationally, not, not using the sort of silly power of positive thinking, but just being like, am, am I really doomed? <laughs> and getting and developing that habit over the course of a lot of hard work over the course of many uh, many months almost a year um i now uh I, it comes and it just isn't as bad as it used to be I, I i feel like i can mostly um uh fight it off and make my my bouts of depression much more manageable at the end of the book you have an appendix that includes a summary of how to administer cbt and you also mentioned david burns's book about cbt i thought that was a great add-on i really love his book it's a really good book. Well, I'd like to give a, a special shout out for Robert Leahy, um, who is a very prominent scholar of, of cognitive behavioral therapy, who was um, very helpful uh, with his time um, in, in, in this book. Um, his specialty is, is cognitive behavioral therapy. He, he wrote a book called The Worry Cure, which is more directed at, um, uh, at anxiety as opposed to depression. At some points in the book, you seem to take a Nietzschean perspective on pain and discuss how pain can make you stronger. But at other points, you take a Stoic perspective, and these two perspectives aren't really reconcilable. So where do you stand on this? So first, let's distinguish the concept of anti-fragility. That's the key concept. And this is what I will stake my life and my reputation on, that this is a useful concept, and it's not quite what Nietzsche was talking about. Or rather, let me put it this way. So anti-fragility, the idea from Nassim Taleb, I think most of our listeners will have heard of it, that there are some systems that uh, there's some things that you need to protect because they're fragile and it doesn't help them to drop them like a, a wine glass. But the immune system or the banking system, there are a variety of complex systems that if they're not challenged or stressed or dropped, they get soft, they get fragile, they, they lose their ability to respond. So you can cause autoimmune diseases in your kid if you protect them from bacteria very effectively. Uh, so kids need to be exposed to experiences. They need to have all kinds of experiences and threats um, to learn how to deal with them. Small threats uh, when they're young, but they can handle bigger problems as they get older. And if we protect them all the way up to college and then send them off to college, they will find small threats to be intolerable. Now, you use the example of pain. Am I saying that if we could just administer pain to seven-year-olds, we'd make them better? No, it's not suffering per se. It's coping with a problem and overcoming it. So, um, you know, I live in New York City. I've had to wrestle with the question of when to send my kids out. Um, it's very safe here. We live in Greenwich Village. It's extremely safe. Um, but it's a little scary to send your kids out. But, you know, I want my daughter, you know, my daughter's seven. My son, my, eight, my daughter's eight. My son is, is 12. Um, I want them to experience getting lost in the neighborhood um, and then having to actually ask someone, which way is Washington Square Park? That's a basic skill that we all had to learn when we were growing up. So it's not that I want my daughter to suffer, period, but I do want her at times to get lost, to be anxious, and to realize, oh, I can ask someone for help. That is anti-fragility. That is learning from experience. Uh, I think Nietzsche would support me on that. You know, when I was doing research for my dissertation, I heard from a therapist who'd been working at a college for decades that she's now seeing students who've never had any failure experiences prior to college, which is troubling. And it's not like we want people to feel pain per se, but you want people to learn that they can cope with failure. That's right. I mean, this is, and I think this is why psychology has been, well, I was about to say, this is why psychology is so central to Heterodox Academy. No, it's probably just that I'm a psychologist and a bunch of the early members were psychologists. But 
um, you know, think about it this way. Uh, your kid has to learn to not touch a hot stove after people have been cooking on it. You know how a stove stays hot afterwards. And there's two ways that your kid could learn. One is you can give them lectures and show them photographs and say over and over again, don't touch a stove for, you know, an hour after it was on. And the other way is that they touch it once, they get burned, and then they never do it again. Um, and which way is more likely to work in a lasting way? I mean, this is just basic behaviorism. This is this is uh, you know operant conditioning and bringing in some Pavlovian as well at times. Um, so if we if we deprive our kids of learning experiences, including the the discomfort of negative feedback, we are crippling them as surely as if we put a bubble around them to protect them from bacteria uh, and uh, and viruses. Readers of John's last book, The Righteous Mind, won't be surprised to learn that part of this book is about political divisiveness. One of the most basic principles is me against my brother, me and my brother against our cousin, me, my brother, and cousin against the stranger. So that Bedouin proverb perfectly captures the idea that people are really, really good at forming shifting coalitions based on the current threat. And so if you imagine trying to build a really diverse college community. That's what we're all trying to do. Every school in the country, practically, certainly all the top ones, are actively trying to increase diversity. Okay, that's great. That can have many, many benefits, but how do you do it? If you bring people to campus and you teach them, you teach them certain currently fashionable ideas that lead them to see people in terms of race, gender, sexual orientation, and that lead them to see certain certain ends of, of those dimensions as good, um, and others as bad, if you teach them to play up group differences and moralize those differences, then you're taking what could be a real plus in the form of diversity and turning it into constant struggle, recrimination, and distrust. Um, so, um, so, I, so a lot of people are realizing this, that identity politics that starts from a common humanity view, as Martin Luther King did, where you say we're all Americans or we're all humans. He used a lot of Christian language. He used all kinds of ways of encompassing everyone together and then saying some of our brothers and sisters are not being accorded equal dignity or equal opportunity. That works. That appeals to people of all races. That is beautiful. Unfortunately, many people go the opposite way. That is, they say, let's unite. We have to all unite against them, against the bad people. And to do that in a diverse environment, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, what kind of social scientist could look at this, could look at this common enemy identity politics and think this was a good idea? So, Greg, do you talk to college administrators about this issue? I do. Um, the, the one thing that FIRE's always tried to do, and it's something that um, <laughs> could be quite challenging, particularly at first, is we go to conferences of, uh, for example, the Association of Student Conduct Administrators. Um, you know, I went there for years by myself um, to give talks on free speech. And, and that's a tough crowd to speak in front of because, of course, we're their watchdogs. Um, so we're not the most popular kids in the room, but we didn't want to be... We've never wanted to be the group that just sort of preaches to the choir or talks to people we already agree with. There's that's that might feel good, but it's it's hollow and meaningless. Um, and when we do talk to administrators, but there is there is an interesting uh, paradox here, though. Um, sometimes you get like, well, in the current environment, can you blame people for being angry or upset? And 
the answer is no. Uh, I don't blame anybody for feeling a little bit, uh, you know, crazy in the current, you know, bizarre uh, world that we live in. Um, that being said, given some of the some of the trends we've seen on campus that have made professors nervous about what they can say, um, and given how we've seen this kind of now, it's not just the sort of more liberal leaning students you have to worry about; it's the right wing outrage mobs on the internet as well. Um, I am starting to see administrators uh, ask for our help more often. And, and that's been for years now um, that, that, that admit administrators will come to us and ask kind of like, how do I, you know, what can we do? You know, and the easiest thing universities do in a lot of cases is reform their speech codes or pass some version of the uh, Chicago Statement on Academic Freedom. The thing I'm always advocating is try to teach them some of these concepts of academic freedom, freedom of speech upfront because I hear, I have heard for most of my career, a lot of blaming the students, even when the students, in my opinion, were actually quite good on these issues about for, you know, um, some of the more ridiculous cases of censorship we see at fire. Um, and my response was always to the administrators, like, but have you taught them anything about these concepts? Uh, believe very natural to believe that people who disagree with you are, are, are evil. The idea that, um, one, you should tolerate them is, is quite a huge step. And the idea that sometimes you should actually listen to them, that's, that, that's hard. That's, and that's not intuitive, and that's not most of human history, um, that you actually listen to even what your enemy says just in case they might have a point. And, John, you've noticed that some other journalists and scholars are also writing about divisiveness? Uh, actually, let me, I've got a list of them here, but it's like, so Amy Chua in her book, uh, Moral Tribes, uh, oh, Francis Fukuyama has a book uh, out just this week um, uh, on identity politics. Let's see, my book was just, uh, my, this book, The Coddling the American Mind, was just reviewed uh, by Thomas Chatterton Williams, who's African-American. Uh, so there's all these different um, uh, different people who are who are saying, wait, this is madness. We've got to stop doing this. Uh, who else? Oh, Anthony Appia, his new book, The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity Politics. He's a wonderful philosopher here at NYU. Uh, I, I did a panel with him at Middlebury, and it's really clear. I mean, he's been thinking about identity for a long, long time. Uh, he's been really a leader in thinking about what does it take for us to get used to each other and live productively and amicably alongside each other. I mean, he's from Ghana uh, and is used to multicultural situations. So all the, it's just very exciting that I think there's a lot of new thinking about identity politics, which is much more sociologically informed than the kind that kind of has the loudest voice on campus. Now, in the section on divisiveness, you say one of the great untruths we have to combat is that the world can be divided into good versus evil people. And I see your point, but at the same time, I feel like some people genuinely are evil. Take Vladimir Putin, for example. Do you feel like no one should be classified as evil? No. I, I, I don't. And it, sometimes I, I even, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a secular atheist. Um, and sometimes I sort of jar my, my, my fellow atheists when I say that I actually do believe in human evil. I just don't believe it's all that common. Um, and I think that the tendency to assume people who do something you don't like have negative characteristics or have negative, are coming from negative motivations is extremely common, whereas actual human evil is comparatively rare. We're not saying it doesn't exist, but immediately jumping to the um, the idea that the people on the other side of this, for example, a political issue, are obviously motivated by evil is not at, at a uh, constructive starting point. Given, I think, as like I said, I think I think we're lucky enough that human evil is fairly rare. I actually, there, there's a pop psychology uh, uh, psychologist who I actually, uh, when I was in high school, wrote some stuff that I still find find of link 
lingering value. Um, M. Scott Peck wrote a book called The um, the Road Less Traveled, but he also wrote a book called People of the Lie, and it's his attempt to sort of uh, quantify evil from a psychological standpoint. And basically, he, he thinks of evil people as primarily um, sociopathic, but so, so but with a particular kind, with an element of sadism as well. And I thought that was probably about as close to a, a sort of clinical definition of evil as I could find. John and Greg conclude the book with suggestions for how to fix the problem. So if listeners will go to heteroxacademy.org, and then if you go to then slash mill, uh, you get our our, uh, our version of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, which is wonderful. I think every incoming freshman uh, should read it. Um, uh, every university should assign it. If you go to openmindplatform.org, um, it's it's this wonderful program that, um, um, that I, I created with Caroline Mell, who now, we've now spun it off. It's no longer part of Heterodox Academy. It's an independent organization because it actually uh, is working not just at universities, but in all kinds of organizations. Um, so we, but openmind, uh, openmindplatform.org is a wonderful resource that will help any institution um, uh, develop norms of open-minded discourse. Meanwhile, Fire has plans for younger audiences. We want to do a lot more outreach at a high school level. We want to do a lot more outreach even to a, um, uh, a you know K through eight level. Um, that's definitely where we think uh, there's a lot of room to grow and a lot of uh, possibilities to try to explain and boil down some of these concepts that we can take for granted are really actually quite sophisticated concepts um, uh, to, uh, to a younger audience. I, I think we kind of surprise ourselves by, by coming to the conclusion that, for example, having a cultural expectation of a gap year, um, I think would be really helpful, uh, a gap year between high school and college, for example, um, to uh, give students that, that sense of locus of control that we think is missing from particularly from students who have this kind of overparenting effect. Because the problem is, if you do have your, your time scheduled to death all all the time, there's a sense that you're not really competent to control your own life. And I think, you know, a year where people do, where people do something other than school and actually go out and, you know, work a job, maybe in some other part of the country, just it's irreplaceable on how much it can teach you about your own abilities and competence um, that, uh, you know, in a way that colleges can't do. So one of the things that occurs to me is that there's a difference between residential and non-residential colleges. In residential colleges, dorm living almost encourages irresponsible behavior. Yeah. And I I refer to this as my superpower in undergraduate. When I started working in a restaurant when I was 11 years old, and I I worked all the way. Uh, By the time I was going to college, I already was a a sous chef. Um, You know, so I had like a a, a skill, you know, and I, I had a, <laughs> a level of personal freedom that even today some people might consider maybe a little irresponsible. Um, but uh, my superpower was that I was over the novelty of personal freedom and watching a lot of my, my fellow students kind of, you know, seem like moths to the flame in their, in their first couple uh, in the first couple of years, because this was our first experience of personal freedom. It did make me wonder if, you know, some, uh, some additional, uh, real life experience before college would be helpful. In addition to resources for college students and high school students, there may even be something for very young people in the works. 
Um, I've always wanted to write a children's book about freedom of speech to kind of explain this, you know, from a very early age. And people, you know, of course, I have, I have two kids under three and people are like, OK, Mr. Free Speech, how, you know, how are you going to feel when you're, you, you know, it's your own kids? And, and my answer is always, since I think the primary value of making freedom of speech useful is epistemic humility, knowing that you don't know all that much. I hope to be able to convey to my two sons that uh, a very deep sense of, of how little uh, all of us know um, that helps them take better advantage of hearing people out. Greg, you mentioned you're always happy to hear from listeners and readers. How can people get in touch with you? I'm greg at thefire.org. Um, I'm also uh, G. Lukianoff, uh, at G. Lukianoff on Twitter. Um, and check out our website called The Coddling about the book. Um, we intentionally picked that name because we thought it sounded kind of silly because we want, you know, we know that people sometimes have a hard time with the title and we kind of like to make fun of it ourselves, like as if it's like the blob. Uh, but really all we're saying is that um, uh, that sometimes attempts to uh, pr protect kids and students can actually have deleterious effects. Before we go, I'd like to ultimately know, are you hopeful? Um, yes. Um, there's a wonderful phrase from Bill Clinton that I just heard. It's from his first inaugural. Uh, he said, there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed by what's right with America, something like that. Um, and I think that same thing is true of universities. Uh, we, we have extraordinary minds working on every aspect of diversity and inclusion and racism and psychological adaptation. We have historians of the academy. We have intellectual historians. We can figure out what's going on. I think there's a growing recognition in the last two years that the way we're going is unsustainable. These new ideas are making it very hard for university leaders. I heard one say recently that universities are becoming ungovernable. They're making it hard for professors. I hear more and more now when I speak at different schools, when I talk with professors over lunch, now most of them either have a, a real a, a horror story or at least someone close to them does. Um, so there's a growing recognition that we have serious problems. Um, uh, faith in higher ed, trust in higher ed is plummeting on the right. Um, it's even dropping on the left because of price issues, but it's plummeting on the right, which is terrible for universities in red states, for state universities in red states. So higher ed has been due for a reckoning for a while for financial reasons. And we're really shooting ourselves in the foot if we make ourselves poster child, poster children um, to be used and exploited by the right wing media. We've got to get our house in order. And my point is, we know how to do that. We know how to um, to to improve a culture, uh, to set it up for open-ended inquiry and the kind of productive, trusting interaction and debate that we need to do our work. And so that's what we're doing. So at Heterodox Academy, that's our mission. Our mission is to help universities improve their academic culture and climate, to, to welcome uh, free inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement. My point is, we have a problem, we have a good understanding of the problem, and we have the tools to deal with the problem. So I'm hopeful that we can drop the moralism, step out of the culture war, and just say, look, we all want what's best for our students. We all want thriving, vibrant, well-respected universities. Let's go at it. Let's do it. The Coddling of the American Mind is now available in bookstores online and on audiobook read by Jonathan Haidt himself. The website is thecoddling.com. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook. 